All right, let's thank these guys for working hard on the front lines of rock and roll. And go ahead and have a seat uh, this morning. My name is John, and I am one of the pastors here. Did everybody have a good Thanksgiving? I hope you did. I hope you did. Uh, my family all got together, and uh, man, it was an interesting mix of people at Thanksgiving uh, at our place, actually, at my in-law's place. And everybody behaved. Nobody told anybody else what they didn't like about the other person was doing. Nobody talked about politics. Oh, man, it was fantastic. Give my family a round of applause. It's good. Uh, We are in week three of a series that we're calling Wishing Well uh, right now. We're not talking about digging into a wishing well for ourselves or or, or, or uh, dreams of what we'd like, you know, or asking God for things as much as we're saying, God... um, what posture do you want us to take as your people to be the people that you want us to be in the world around us, to be generous, to be sacrificial, to be giving? Uh, we think that that's what God is calling us to. Uh, but speaking of, of wishes and dreams, uh, when I was young, uh, I used to have this wish. I used to pray this prayer that God would give me a million bucks. It was totally reasonable, believe me, right? I mean, don't you want that? Don't you want just money to fall from the sky? Because I don't know what you would do with a million dollars, but I had fantastic ideas with what I would do with a million dollars. And God never answered that prayer for me as a young man. Actually, he did. He said, no, (laughs) nay, you shall not have the million. That is not how God works, actually. I mean, he doesn't really pick and choose who he wants to just give a million bucks to. Uh, If he were that kind of God, if he just was kind of roaming around, you know, saying, okay, you deserve it, uh, then certainly he's going to pick somebody who knows what to do with money, you know, who has uh, dreams of helping people and saving for the future and giving it away and doing all these great things with it, which I did not have as a 20-year-old man, right? So, uh, Um, That's just not how God works. When I was young, and by the way, I'm going to talk a little bit about money today. Uh, I am not a financial guru. I do not have a a corner on this. Believe me, I have made so many mistakes with money over the course of my life. I'll tell you some of the mistakes I've made. Uh, When I was young, I also bought into a myth. I bought into many myths (laughs) that that I believed, uh, and still I I am trying to unbelieve some of these myths. Maybe you will uh, find common ground with me. I believed that I had time when it came to money. Had all the time in the world, especially like in my 20s. Oh my goodness. I wasn't like those old farts in their 30s and 40s. And God forbid those people in their 50s on the precipice of death. Like I, I wasn't, th- I wasn't, I had all the time in the world. I'm 50, by the way. So I, I can say that. Like had all the time. No, that's, that's a lie. It's a myth that I bought into. I, I also thought that nothing really devastating would ever happen to me or my family. That was a myth. Uh, I believed it's my money. I can do whatever I want with it. It's a myth. I believed that uh, my current most pressing needs, mine, were the greatest needs, and they needed to be met right then. I, I believed that I could risk my family in pursuit of money. It was just for a short time, and they know that I have their best interest at heart. It's a myth. I believe uh, then that uh, there were programs to take care of people who had big financial needs. Somebody else was going to take care of them. And I believe that I was never going to be one of those people who needed help. It's all myths. I believe that I knew best for my financial future. Myth, 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 myth. 
I bought them all. And like I said, I'm still trying to unbelieve some of those myths. And I look back over the course of my life and I, I see that I did some damage, right? I'm trying to repair some of that damage, undo some of that damage. And so how do we learn? How do we learn about money? Well, we look, we look at other people and we, we find people who are more wise, <laughs> probably more wealthy, who give away more money than we do. We could ever possibly imagine. We say, okay, I'm going to learn from them. It's one of the things I've done. And I also look into God's word and I say, well, what does the Bible have to say? What do people before me have to say? about what we should be doing with our money. And so we're going to do that. We're going to look into, into that today. Um, I'm a musician as well, if you don't know that. And I play out and about in town all the time. By the way, I'm playing at Citizen Vine Friday night. Christmas concert, come on out. It's going to be great. Anyway, one of the most requested songs that I get when I'm out playing out around town is Neil Young's song, Heart of Gold. And it's fantastic. I love playing it because I get to play harmonica and guitar and sing at the same time. And people think it's magic, but I've been doing it for over 30 years. It's a lot easier than it looks. Anyway, so uh, I love it. It says, uh, I want to live. I want to give. I've been a miner for a heart of gold. And then this is really cool. He says, it's these expressions I never give that keep me searching for a heart of gold. And I'm getting old. Oh, wise 26-year-old Neil Young, when he introduced that song, I'm getting old, but, but see, he acknowledged that time is passing. And he also acknowledged that a heart of gold is a constant pursuit. And we see a heart of gold all around us. Like when you run into somebody who has a heart of gold, you just want to be like them. People who are selfless, people who give everything away, people who are hospitable, people who welcome people in and everything I have is yours. Like we want a heart of gold. It's different than a heart for gold, right? Which is about accumulation and acquisition and, and, and power and no, a heart of gold. Man, we want that. Like Mother Teresa, one of my heroes, serving the, the poorest of the poor in Calcutta, right? She was interviewed once by a TV reporter. Uh, he, he saw the, like the stink and the stench and the filth that she was in and helping people and, and holding people in their last moments, right? And loving people. And the reporter said to her, man, I would not do what you do for all the money in the world. And you know what Mother Teresa said? Neither would I. Oh, man. Oh, that's a heart of gold. When you see it, you want it. Now, uh, in the 80s and 90s, there were two bumper stickers that kind of shaped how I thought about money and how a lot of people in my generation thought about money. And we still see them from time to time. The bumper stickers are this. The first one is, uh, I am spending my kid's inheritance. And the other one is, he who dies with the most toys wins. Now, uh, you would see this on the back of RVs a lot or toy haulers, that kind of thing. I have nothing against those things. I actually have a trailer. I like taking it out. I like camping. But this, this kind of mentality is symptomatic of a huge problem that has had horrible effects for my generation, and I think it continues to have horrible effects in the economy that we live in. So what do we do? Again, we look to wise people. We look to the Bible to see what it has to say. Um, 
It's interesting, though. When we talk about money in church, uh, there's really, there's extremes about what people think the Bible says about money. There's extremes everywhere, right? You look on Facebook, you're going to find extremes. Uh, you, you just talk to somebody in your family, you're going to hear extremes. Politics, there's extremes. In the world of Jesus followers, there are two extremes when it comes to money. One group over here, and by the way, this group absolutely loves Jesus, and they want good for people, and they want to be generous. This side, uh, this, this extreme says, God wants you to be rich. I mean, he wants you to be filthy rich. I mean, he wants you to have everything you've des- ever desired. The cars, the planes, the helicopters, the giant beehive hairdo with 15 cans of hairspray and rings on your fingers. Like, he wants that for you. Now, these, like I said, these are good people that do good things. Now, this extreme over here says, no, God doesn't want that at all. God wants you to be poor. Anything that you take in, God wants you to give it away. You find out the bare necessities, the bare minimum of what you need to live on, and that's what God wants for you. Now, both of these camps are Jesus-loving people, and both of them will turn to the Bible and make a pretty convincing argument for their side. You want to know my opinion? Maybe you don't, but for some reason, they decided to give me a microphone today. So here it is. My opinion is it's neither one of those extremes. And the Bible teaches a little bit about both of those things. It's a both and. God wants us to prosper. God wants us to be well. God wants us to take care of our families. God wants us to give a lot of money away. God does not hate wealth. And God wants us to hold it loosely. And he wants us to give it away. And he wants us to be hospitable. And he wants us to be compassionate. And he wants us to be generous. And when we get to the point where we think that we've just expressed all the generosity in the world, God wants us to be more generous. God wants to multiply everything that we have for the sake of others, no matter where we're at. Whatever your socioeconomic status is, God wants to multiply what you and I have for the sake of others because God is in the others business. This is what he does. He wants us to have this kind of a mindset. When this whole story in the Bible starts out, God puts man and, and woman in the garden, and he has beautiful, vivid language about how he wants us to enjoy everything that he's made. He puts them in the garden, and he says, all this is yours. He says, take it in. He says, we're going to be creative, Adam. I want you to name the animals with me. We're going to have so much fun. Enjoy this creation. Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. Doesn't that sound fantastic? He says, you can eat of any tree in the garden, anything. It's all yours. Just stay away from that tree over there. But, but you guys can eat anything you want. Have that fruit or that fruit or make a fruit salad. It doesn't matter. You can have anything you want. Just stay away from that tree over there. Spoiler alert. Chose the wrong tree. This is how the story goes. So now it's a broken system. We're supposed to enjoy everything. Now it's a totally broken, upside-down system. And Jesus comes on the scene many, many years later. And all of a sudden, you find Jesus talking a whole lot about money. And sometimes that's a head-scratcher for people. They go, why did Jesus talk so much about money? Because the system that he was born into was totally destitute and broken and upside-down. And not how it was supposed to work. 
And the people with all the power were controlling all of the money, all of the sustenance. They controlled the bread, right? Which, by the way, we refer to our money sometimes. We have little nicknames for it. Two of the popular ones that have endured the test of time are dough and bread. Hey, man, I'm short on dough. Can you, can you loan me some scratch? Can you give me some bread? Like, why do we call it dough and bread? Because money, we know, is good for a lot of things. But you know what it's best for? Like survival, feeding ourselves, feeding our families, feeding others. Here's a mind blower. Jesus is born into a broken system where the bread is being controlled by the powerful. You know where he's born? He's born into a town called Bethlehem. You know what Bethlehem literally means? It means house of bread. He's born into the house of bread. Other translations of the town say house of meat, but the, but the, the thing is, is it, it, house of bread. That's beautiful. Oh, and then think about this. Jesus calls himself the bread of life. And then what do we do at the communion table? We come together and we share in the bread and, and the wine, and everybody gets the same portion, and nobody goes without. And we have this beautiful picture of Jesus taking care of, of us, and we break the bread, and he says, this is my body given for you. Isn't that, isn't that cool? Isn't that poetic? That the bread of life, the bread that is given for us, was born into the house of bread, doesn't want anybody to go without. And Jesus comes in, and he turns this entire system of power on its head. On its head. Uh, Jesus brings a contrary system to the one that he was born into. The first or last in the system the last are first, the empty are full, the poor are rich, the weak are strong. It's everything opposite. It's beautiful. But bottom line, nobody goes without. You read the book of Acts and it's, uh, it's this picture of what the church was doing in its early days, what the people of God were doing, Jesus followers are doing in the early days. And you get to Acts chapter 4 and there's this beautiful picture of the church coming together And to make sure nobody went without, they're pooling all of their resources, they're selling things they have, they're taking their property, they're selling it, they're giving it to the church, they're figuring it out, and nobody goes without. Now, some people say, ah, see, socialism, Jesus is a socialist, Canadians have it right, we should be, listen, first of all, Jesus wasn't born to the U.S. of A., right? Jesus was born into a different time, a different system, a different people, and back then, that's what made absolute sense was for the church to say this broken system needs to change and we are going to make sure, bottom line, that nobody goes without bread. That's an absolutely beautiful thing and I think that's how God works. In Jesus' system, uh, the power shifts. So instead of the power controlling all of the bread, now the power comes in, you and I laying it down and you and I being sacrificial and you and I being generous and you and I giving things away and you and I taking care of people and you and I looking at the system in a totally different way. And this kind of power multiplies in God's kingdom. It has these ripple effects. And I really believe at my core We honestly can change the world if we're generous, if we hold things loosely, if we give things away, if we take care of people. I really believe that. It's getting into Christmas time. 
29 days till Christmas, by the way. That leaves you 40 shopping days to Christmas because you know you're going to have to take things back for the next 10, 11 days after that. Anyway, so I have some great memories about Christmas and, and gift giving and receiving in my life. And most of my like, potent memories come from times of poverty, honestly, because when you're flat broke, like generosity is magnified. When I was a kid, we were poor. I didn't know how poor we were because I asked for a dirt bike for Christmas. So I obviously didn't know what kind of dire straits we were in. My dad, who's a painting contractor, this particular Christmas, uh, connected with my cousin Mike, who's a cabinet maker, and they scrounged up some wood that was left over in his cabinet shop. And my dad... uh, Ask the question, what does my son need? What is he really going to use? What's he going to love? And my dad, who's not a word worker, worked with my cousin to build a beautiful box to house my cassette tapes in that were scattered all over my room at that time. Kids' cassette tapes are... Anyway. (laughs) So... But my dad sanded this thing down and stained it and... Oh, man, it was beautiful. And it, it cost my dad a lot to give that gift. I know it did. Not financially, but, I mean, it cost him his pride, honestly. I mean, what dad doesn't want to give their kid a dirt bike? And it cost him hours. It cost him time. It cost him thinking through, what is my son going to want? What's going to touch him? Like, in our family, we call those love gifts. We still give love gifts, like, They just take time and energy and thought. And that was a beautiful thing for me. I remember another love gift uh, that came a few years later when when Tawny, my wife, and I were married maybe like two or three years. We um, We were volunteering our time for our high school youth group at the church. And this one particular evening, we all got together in this gym, basketball gym. We uh, decided we were going to play a game called Murder Ball. And I can't remember the rules of the game, but guaranteed, if you ever play a game called Murder Ball, there are going to be consequences. Somebody is going to get hurt at the end. And I have this vivid memory of running full speed ahead down this basketball court and tripping over a set of bleachers as like 175 rubber bouncing balls came hurled at my head. And I remember slow motion flying through the air as I tripped and and my hand jammed into another set of bleachers and it hit a wall. And I don't know if you knew this was possible, but it is. Your fingers can all go different directions. And that's what happened to me. And I could feel still to this day every bump in the road as we're driving to the hospital to take care of my hand. And we get to the emergency room and the doctor comes in. And my fingers are swollen like my calves size. Like they're, they're huge. Especially my wedding ring finger. And uh, the doctor looks at that and he says, well, first things first, buddy, is that ring has to come off. Now, you can't just slide a wedding ring off a swollen finger. It's got to be cut off. Now, that doctor, that evil doctor, <laughs> had no idea how hard those two kids had to work prior to marriage to save up for a wedding ring, right? And I was sad. I mean, I was heartbroken. And so they brought in the devil's pliers that were about this big. And they, they 
cut off that wedding ring and I can still remember the sound of it hitting that stainless steel pan full of that red stuff. Iodine, what is that stuff? I, I don't know. I forget what they call it. I, get, I can still remember it. Well, fast forward a few months and my wife and I are flat broke. I mean, we are poor kids. We had developed such a taste for government cheddar at this point in our life. And uh, I didn't expect a thing, but my wife says, your gift is on the tree this year. And I, I was looking for like an ornament she made me, you know, probably fashioned with raffia or something. You know, I mean, because that would have been commensurate to my wages at the time. You know, I didn't, I didn't know exactly what was going to happen. But they're like hanging on the tree in the middle of the tree on this, on this red ribbon was, was my wedding ring. It was all like put back together. I don't know what kind of magic she worked. I don't know who she talked to. I don't know what she had to sell uh, to do this, but, but man, it was fantastic. I, I remember crying like a baby. Like 20 something years later, we both got our rings tattooed on our finger. I don't know if my wife knows how accident prone I am or what the deal is, but, uh, but I have my wedding ring tattooed there. Nobody's going to take that thing unless I get in trouble with the mafia and then they might, they might want to <laughs> have no idea what's going to happen. Uh, but, but I remember those kind of gifts were the kinds of things that made me go, I want to be a better giver. I want to give away more stuff. I want to give away costly gifts because those were costly gifts and love prompts us you and i to give costly gifts right i want to have that kind of love for people and there's a difference by the way between something that's expensive and something that costs there's a big difference something that costs communicates investment in people it communicates love for humanity that's, that's the thing I want. In Mark chapter 12, there's this beautiful story about this woman uh, that I'll, I'll read just a portion of this here. Uh, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were, uh, and he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury, and many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents, and calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. In God's economy, you and I, we, Lakeside, we play a huge role in sacrificial, costly giving, and costly multiplies. And I don't only mean in the way that when we all pool together our collective costly gifts that we get to do amazing things, although that is true. But you know where it multiplies? It multiplies in our head. It multiplies in our heart. Like Things happen when we allow God to work things in us and we become costly giver. It multiplies. So there's a few things that at this point in my life that, I, that I, I'm praying God helps me to keep putting into practice to become a costly giver. And I'll share something with you there I learned a long time ago, a few things. Number one, uh, costly giving, I think, requires off-the-top sacrifice. I really, truly believe this. And even when my wife and I were poor kids, we, 
we started talking to wise people and learning about generosity, and we decided that we were going to, whatever we made, we were going to give away 10% right off the top uh, to the church that was doing great things in the community and, and for people and for humanity. And we gave away a tenth because it was something that we had learned uh, from the Bible in some stories in the Old Testament about how the, the people of Israel and ancient Israel used to give away what, what we now call a tithe. And a tithe uh, means a tenth part. And it's talked about uh, quite a few times in the Old Testament. Uh, and so some of us today uh, still practice that. We, we give away a tenth. Maybe, maybe you're here and you do that. But here's, here's the trippy thing. The tenth part was really only part of the Old Testament system that was uh, required and that was part of a much larger financial system for Israel. It was tied to feasts. Uh, giving was tied to almsgiving. It was tied uh, to different times uh, where they give temple tax. It was tied to a thing that they did called jubilee. Uh, it was tied to things like sporadic giving and annual giving and every three years giving. And the experts, depending on who's doing the math, they look back at that system and they say, honestly, if you want, if you want to be truthful about what Israel was required to give, they gave somewhere between 23% and 30% of their income. It was required by law. Now, before it's required by law, it shows up in other ways uh, in the Old Testament as people giving a tenth or, or being generous and giving more. But I do find it interesting that in that 23 to 30% and all of those different ways that people give, the one thing that we carried over into today's church and in today's giving system is the 10th part. It's the only thing we carried over. He said, yeah, I'm pretty good with that 10th part. Now, a 10th is amazing. If we are consistently and sacrificially giving a 10th of our income, I think that is absolutely beautiful. I love it when that happens. And, and, and operating like that for my family has meant so much. It's incredible. But would you believe me if I told you that I think the Bible teaches something like that makes a great floor, but not so much a great ceiling? Would you believe me if I told you that I think God wants to do even more than that in our life? Now, it if you don't give it all and, and you're thinking like that can be a huge sum of money to think about and it's good, it's good. 10% is good. Don't hear me dissing that. But imagine this, like I, I know people, I know a guy who does construction in Texas. He lives on 10% of his income and gives away 90%. He flip-flops the whole thing. I know people who give away 10% of their income from this revenue stream and this revenue stream, they give away, you know, uh, 25% or 50%. I know people who give whole revenue streams away. I know people who save uh, money and they buy property and they, and they sell it and they give it to the church and they give it to things that are happening in the world around them to take care of people and they give and they give and they give. Honestly, it's not about percentages. It's really not even about money. It's about allowing God to do something in our heart to make us a more generous people. So you should never give 10% anywhere because you feel guilty. God wouldn't want that. You should never give 10% or more uh, because you think it's what is required of you. In 
But at the same time, we should never give 10% or more because we think it's like the ceiling of generosity. God actually wants to do amazing, mind-blowing things through us. So off the top sacrifice, I also think that costly giving requires taking care of pressing needs. Like imagine being so financially free that you can, like that, just take care of a need when it arises. Honestly, Lakeside, I am so proud of us. I think this is something that we do really, really well. When there's fires, we help people. Tsunamis, we help people. We need toys, we bring them in. The food bank needs food, we bring it in. I think we do so well at this. And I also think, as well as we do, that God always wants to say, can, can I do more? Can I do, can I do more? I love this. There's this passage in Matthew chapter 14 uh, where Jesus feeds the 5,000. Maybe you've heard this story before. Uh, Jesus multiplies loaves and fish to feed a bunch of people. But this is where the story starts. And in uh, chapter 14, verse 13 of Matthew, it says, When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. And by the way, what had happened is his cousin, John the Baptist, had just been beheaded. And Jesus wanted to get away from it all. He just wanted to be left alone. And you can totally understand that, right? But hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. So they wouldn't leave him alone. Go figure. But when Jesus landed and got out of the boat, he saw a large crowd and he had compassion on them. Of course he did. But this is what Jesus does. And he healed their sick. And as evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place. It's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. And Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. I want to pause there for a second because I can't tell you how many times I read this story and missed that. The rest of the story is Jesus doing this miracle and multiplying loaves and fish and there's a bunch left over. He's a God of abundance. But this part of the story makes me pause. You give them something to eat. See, it's totally reasonable in God's economy for you and I to take care of other people's needs. It reminds me of like my kids standing in front of the refrigerator growing up. You know, it's packed with food. And they scream from the kitchen, Mom, I'm hungry! But they got the door wide open, wasting electricity, you know. <laughs> Mom, I'm hungry. Well, get yourself something to eat. But I'm hungry. I don't know what to eat. I'm hungry. Well, feed yourself. I... At times in my life, I've been the kid in front of the refrigerator. And I think that's what was happening with the disciples here too, is they're going, Jesus fixed this problem. And he says, you guys, you can fix this problem. You have the technology, make it happen. It's totally reasonable for people to pull together to take care of things. In 2 Corinthians chapter nine, there's a scene, a scenario where people are pulling everything together to, to take care of things, take care of people. And the backstory is that uh, Paul and all of his friends have been talking to these churches, and we don't know exactly what the uh, calamity was. We don't know exactly what had happened, but they, they all decided they were going to pool resources. 
And Paul says, look, I'm, I, I want to remind you guys of this gift. We all promised we were going to take care of people. Don't make me look bad. Don't make me look stupid. Just let's all get on the same page. This, seriously, it's in there. He's like, come on, we, we got to pull through. We got to take care of people in our community. And he sends a letter ahead to them in 2 Corinthians 9. There's some little gems that we often quote when we're talking about money in church. These are some things from that letter. He says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God's able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you'll abound in every good work. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. See, he wants to multiply things in us no matter where we're at. You'll be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, it's also an overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you've proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. What's he saying? Wherever you're at, God's going to multiply it, give generously, decide to give, and give. And you know what's going to happen? People are going to talk about it. It's going to change the world. This is one of the things I love about being part of Lakeside that's a little bit larger of a church is when we pull together our like sacrificial resources, our costly resources, we're actually able to make a dent in some beautiful things that are going on in our world and in our community. And I think, I th- I think that's, that's a super cool thing to be part of. And I'm, I'm very proud. Here's another thing. Costly giving not only off the top, but not only pressing needs, but costly giving requires preparing for the future. This goes back to that myth of I have all the time in the world, right? Which I didn't, and I don't, and neither do you. We just don't. This is what the Bible says about preparing for the future. And these are some funny passages, by the way. Uh, Proverbs 6 says, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? Every time I say it, I laugh. When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. So Proverbs are these things that are wise sayings that are true about life most of the time. And honestly, if we don't prepare for the future, it's saying, man, all of a sudden, the future's here. And it's a scary place to be. That doesn't mean that we just go, okay, well, I throw up my hands. Everything's done. Everything's over. Good game, guys. High five. I lost. No, we say, God, what do you, what do you want to do in me now with the future that I have left? Then it says this in James. I love this. A final word to you, arrogant rich, which, by the way, we're all rich. Everybody sitting here is rich. Certainly more rich than some of the people that Paul was talking to, or James was talking to here. Take some lessons in lament. You'll need buckets for the tears when the crash comes upon you. Your money is corrupt. Your fine clothes stink. Ouch. Your greedy luxuries are a cancer in your gut, destroying your life from within. 
You thought you were piling up wealth. What you've piled up is judgment. All the workers you've exploited and cheated cry out for judgment. The groans of the workers you used are abused and are a roar in the ears of the master avenger. You've looted the earth and lived it up. But all you have to show for it is a fatter than usual corpse. Yikes! In fact, what you've done is condemn and murder perfectly good persons who stand there and take it. Hello. Now, maybe we didn't prepare for the future and take care of people along the way because we just never learned how. Maybe no fault of our parents or what. We, we just we didn't learn how. Nobody ever taught us. No, nobody ever sat down and said, this is how you do it. All, all we know is how to make sure that PG&E or SMUD is not going to cut the power, you know, that we're, we're going to have water. Maybe that's all we know. If anybody's in this room that's like in that spot today going, I, I just wish I knew how to do that, there's actually things available. In January, uh, we're going to host a thing called Financial Peace University. Um, Dave Ramsey, who leads this, uh, is a funny, good old boy. Some of his jokes are offensive. If you can look past all of that, he's super duper smarty pants, and he has helped thousands upon thousands of people get control of their finances and do all the things that we're talking about today. I highly recommend that. So maybe we just didn't learn or we just didn't have the know-how, but you know what? Speaking, uh, like if I tore open my chest and gave you a peek inside, uh, uh, some of us didn't do it because we're just selfish. This guy. Because in the words of the great rock band Queen, I want it all, I want it all, I want it all. And I want it now. Some of us might be in that spot. Here's the last thing. Costly giving, I think, requires just starting somewhere. Just starting somewhere. In a few minutes after we give and we we sing a song, don't go anywhere. Don't run to your cars. Brad's got some great things he wants to, to share with us about going further some ways that our team put together for us to go further and be charitable and, and be generous and, and be costly givers. Hang around for that. Just imagine, like, can you imagine living in a place like Folsom where, where we're so sacrificial and we're so generous and we are such costly givers and we have such a heart of gold for this community and we give, give, give so much that we just become the biggest giver to our community, so much so that our community just has to stop and say, why in the world do these people love me so much? And in the course of this, then they're going to meet a God who is lavish and generous and wants us to experience beautiful things and invites us into abundant life and is constantly pursuing us to give us those good things. That's what I want. I think you do too, yeah. Lord, thanks uh, for this day and for these stories and for your word and for uh, people that we can learn from and stories we can learn from, Lord. Uh, None of this, uh, we we know you don't want us to live guilty lives. We don't want to hang our heads low and tuck our tail between our legs and think, woe is me and I've blown it. That's, That's not what you want for us. God, you want to 
do amazing things in the here and now, wherever we're at, right here in the here and now. You want us to start doing amazing things and taking advantage of all the things that you have to offer. Thanks for being our God. Uh, Thanks for being patient with us. Thanks for loving us. We worship you. Amen.